Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Joshua Hardy joins us. He is with the Confederation of of British Industry in London, their Deputy Director General. But he is uniquely qualified to talk about what we're witnessing at Dover. Because for eight years before working with the CIB, he was with Tesco, which is a small grocery store with headaches every day on getting produce out there. Josh Hardy, you are uniquely qualified to speak about the position of business in England right now, a tier four lockdown, Tesco just trying to get things done as it is. What do you perceive to be business into the end of the year and into January? Well, I mean, we're all on tender hooks here in the UK. Um, we've been we've been waiting for four and a half years for a Brexit deal and for clarity. Um, and now, we've, well, we've been hours away for about 24 hours um, so we're, the first thing is we are just desperately hoping that by the end of today we get an announcement on that deal because that matters so much for businesses. It is that certainty about the trading relationship with our biggest trading partner. What will that look like? Whether you're in food, whether you're in pharma, whether you're in services, absolutely critical. So let's get that deal over the line because it is so right. much better um, than, than no deal. The United Kingdom close that we see here, and of course sterling is what everybody's watching. Euro sterling so important to all in this great continental debate, but uh, the the cable we look at as well, 136 earlier, and it's ebbed away here on doubts of a press conference and over fishing rights as well. Josh Hardy, we're fighting for stimulus in America. Some would say it is income substitution. Is business receiving aid from the government in the United Kingdom quite different from what we see in the United States? Um, I think the principles are often the same in that there's a, there's a principle that we set up here very early with the government uh, around COVID and the pandemic, much more than around Brexit, of course, which was we're going to have to recover from this. And to recover, you need businesses ready to grow when the lockdown is. And they're going to need your help. So we've got wage subsidy schemes here. We've got tax deferrals. We've got a broad package of measures. But, of course, we've now gone into this thing called tier four lockdown across the majority of the country, which is which is a, a pretty full lockdown. So we need to keep an eagle eye, business resilience stripped away through the pandemic, of course, everybody, everywhere, not just here. Um, if we're to be in this situation for the next few months, as that vaccine is rolled out, we need to protect as many businesses as possible because they will what, what, uh, what will power that recovery on the other side. Is there a frustration, Josh, that fishing, even though it accounts for such a small proportion of the economy and the overall trade with the European Union, has dominated talks that have made life so difficult for the CFOs of the businesses you speak with? I mean, yes and no. Of course, if you just put an an economic lens on this, um, fishing is not a substantial part of the UK economy, um, and the rest of the economy can feel like it's being held hostage by something um, that is economically relatively small. But we know we've been in this game for a long time. This is not just about economics. This is about sovereignty. Um, And that is something that 
the government have to respect and have to, have to work with. So having that control over fishing rights, being able to, to, to show that you do have sovereignty is, is, we understand, important. But it feels like we are, we are in those final last yards. They're always the hardest, aren't they? But it feels like a deal can be done where that sovereignty is maintained and where the rest of the economy can actually get benefits and grow. So can't say too much about it now because there will be 2,000 pages of legal text that we get in our, in our Christmas stocking to Can't go through. To um, <laughs> well, um, we, but but we, we hope that's there and we hope it's over the line. Josh Hardy, thank you so much with CIBC this morning. We have taken pride in our coverage of this pandemic starting in February and March, really with the leadership of the United Kingdom medical community. Over to Johns Hopkins. And part of that discussion has been Albert Coe of Yale University. He is expert in the diseases across this world that involve bacteria and virology. He's also expert in understanding the need for vaccine he will have the courage to be vaccinated, I believe, on Monday. Albert Coe, you know that Yale University, ages ago, beginning in 1897 and on to 1925, invented the syringe with the Becton and Dickinson Company. We take it for granted today. Tell us the medical evolution of getting that shot and why we should not be afraid today. Right, Tom. Well, thank you very much for having me back on. It's, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so with respect to the medical evolution, you know, we have 100 years or more of experience with vaccines. And if, you, if we think of, of one medical success story that, that really changed our lives, it's been vaccination in terms of prolonging life expectancy, decreasing childhood mortality. And now we come to COVID. And, you know, the, with the amazing work that has been done, the progress in, in a less than a year, we have a vaccine where, you know, current clinical trials have, you know, ex exhaustive studies have shown that it's a safe and effective vaccine. And I think that's a message that we really need to get out to everyone. It's on everyone's mind, whether, you know, this is, we're in a pandemic, this has been developed quickly, is the vaccine safe and effective? And all the evidence we have, you know, uh, points to a really another major medical success story in the making. What is the most efficacious way to line up the ducks to get this done? How do we get millions of people most efficiently to get the vaccine? Yeah, so the first, you know, the first step, you know, which was you know, a tremendous amount of work was to do all the research and development to get a vaccine. The hard work is now coming on. We have to now get, um, you know, uh, tranches or, or swaths of populations vaccinated. And I think there's a couple of issues that are really important to, uh, um, to emphasize. The first is that we have to certainly protect our healthcare workers, our essential workers, those at most risk for the disease. We have to take care of the population here in the United States, and we're going to have to vaccinate up to 80% or more of the population so we can get back to normal or some semblance of normality. But the biggest issue is that we're going to have to protect the whole world. This is not just an American problem, not just a European problem. This is a problem that affecting the livelihoods of, of all people in the world. That's 7.8 billion people. And we're going to have to think about the long run and how we're going to protect the populations across the world. 
In the medium run, as we unroll uh, the vaccine into the general population, people keep getting the virus. We now have a total death count in excess of 320,000 uh, in the United States. We have a case count that is climbing every single day. And there is a question of what we can do to prevent death. How good have some of the remedies been, has the therapeutics been to deal with the virus once people get it and get very sick from it? So, so I think, you know, the, uh, Lisa, really the, the important issue is that we're going to have to use, you know, what we know is tried and true and works for the public health prevention in order to get ourselves into that phase where the vaccine starts kicking in and decreases transmission. We do have improved. We've learned a lot in the last year about how to treat patients. We have, you know, therapies and modalities such as steroids, which decrease uh, the risk of mortality. These to reduce the risk of mortality 20, 30 percent. So we don't have any game changers or home runs on the forefront of therapeutics at this point. And so we're going to have to rely on public health, you know, sound public health prevention to get over over this period. And we're going to have, this is going to be a difficult next several months during these winter months as the surge is occurring, not only, you know, across the United States, but in many parts of the world. Can we get to herd immunity if we can't get kids vaccinated? Because from my understanding, they won't be able to get vaccinated likely until potentially late next year at the outset based on the studies currently out there. Yeah, so as you know, since the beginning, there's this been debate about herd immunity and whether natural infection and we can get, you know, enough people, you know, infected that they're get, they, they become immune due to natural infection and that would protect the rest of the population. You know, I, I worked in Brazil for 25 years. Uh, one of the cities in Brazil, the city of Manaus, which has hit the hardest, you know, uh, had an epidemic that, that affected 75% of the population. So if we're thinking about herd immunity, those are the levels of people who, who are gonna be infected to reach herd immunity. And that's, that's a, Ricard, that's a, that's a uh, disaster that we just can't can't accept. That also provides us a benchmark of how much how many people we need to vaccinate. We're going to have to vaccinate over 75%. That's my own my own judgment at this moment. And we're learning more. We have to be humble and we're learning more each time, but we're going to have to vaccinate large numbers of our population to protect to get to that magic herd immunity uh, threshold. Dr. Ko, thank you so much for being with us. Best of luck when you go get your uh, vaccine. Are you worried or are you excited for it? No, I'm, I'm not worried and I'm excited. And, uh, and I think we're really, you know, entering a new phase of, of how we're going to be able to deal with this uh, vaccine. And I'm just proud to be part of that. Albert Ko, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it with Yale uh, School of Medicine. Let us get here to an important conversation. Jeffrey Yu synthesizes what we see in economics and markets in a wonderful and delicate way. He's with BNY Mellon. To say he's their senior strategist doesn't uh, give justice to what he grasped here of the dynamics as well. Jeffrey, you are ensconced in Tier 4, Tier 5, Tier 6, somewhere in the vicinity of the microcosm of trucks stacked up in southern uh, England as well. Sometimes our macroeconomics are, are overcome by micro events. Tell us about the micro event of business investment and animal spirit in the next year. Um, next year, in one word, 
vaccine vaccinations. If that works, if the Biden administration can uh, bring through 100 million doses in 100 days or outperform that, we've had Tony Blair talking about giving additional dosage or ready to speed up the process. If that works, animal spirits are going to let yeah. rip. I've heard um, people talk again to the roaring 20s again. Are we going to have the roaring right. 2020s? Uh, so that's what people are hoping for. But so far, uh, government competence globally, right. um, I think still caution is needed. Jeff, you, you were weaned on the LSE, the history, the linkage of history into all of this from Lionel Robbins and, of course, the great Megden Desai, among others as well. Within this historical moment and all that we mumbo babble about each and every day, do you have an optimism that we get back to normality after the vaccine? Is it not V-shaped, but is it literally stochastic where we explode back to a normal economy? It will be V-shaped for some. It may not be V-shaped for others. And that, again, is going to be the policy challenge uh, for some time. Remember a few months ago when we first talked about this, there will be winners and losers out of the recovery. And then governments will need to grapple with how do you ensure that the distribution is not too much um, uh, concentrated within those who've done relatively okay out of the lockdown, out of social disruption already. Otherwise, you're going to uh, bruise social issues. But I think we're seeing that in the UK. So is it going to be V for some? Is society going to be a K? Or is it going to be an L for others or even worse? I think that's going to be much more important than what a broader GDP number is going to be. Jeff, a lot of people say that these fundamental arguments don't really matter for risk appetite, that the animal spirits will prevail regardless because you're getting penalized for putting your money in cash. The negative real yields that keep getting negative-er uh, globally and particularly in the United States. But there are two components here, right? There's the actual yield and then there are inflation expectations. Do you think that the inflation expectations have gotten ahead of themselves and that the actual nominal yield is what's telling the right story and that's one of slow growth? and more moderate expectations ahead? Uh, I think the pace has um, uh, caught many by surprise, I would say, including myself. If you look at the five-year, five-year forward break-even right now, it's getting back to 2%. You know, we haven't been here since uh, July last year when we were thinking about additional Fed easing. But in terms of levels, uh, then from central banks' point of view, we're nowhere near where the central banks want it to be. They want the, they want central bank uh, they want the economies to run hot, be it the ECB, be it the Fed. They want to see yields go through 220, 225. Those were the highs in 2017, 2018. So what are you looking for as a central banker right now? Pace or levels? I think they're going to go for levels, which means you keep things easy, and that's going to help risk appetite. So how low could negative yields get? <clears throat> Well, uh, so uh, if well, we do get to 220, 225, and the 10-year so stays at 100 basis points, uh, then if you just use that, then we're uh, looking at well below 100 basis points in terms of negative yields. And again, that's something that central bankers, they want to enforce them right now. In their view, this is the only way to lift animal spirits <clears throat> to get investment back into the economy, to move all that cash. Uh, U.S.-British savings rates above Germany's. Think about that. It needs to be spent. Extraordinary. Jeff, you have very good insight. Jeff, you mentioned pace and levels. And mathematically, folks, this is so, so, so important. When do you presume, given vaccination, that we get to the glide path of January and February of this year? When do we see a level jump that gets us back on stream that seemed comfortable for so many of the public? I think it would be around mid-year, and I might venture to say probably right after mid-year rather than right before. So I'm going to borrow from the ECB here. They've already shifted their language. They had a vaccine being available 
mid-year 2021, and then distribution towards the end of 2021. That has entirely been shifted forward by six months. So that's good. That's why we've seen such a strong move since November. But the next phase is the normalization phase. Then it's going to be on individual governments. And then you're going to start to see dispersion. French authorities okay. just approved uh, vaccinations today. So it'll be different in different places. But do we have the political economic architecture to begin to reverse policies in these dire times? Do we have the ability to reverse and in some way get our policies back to normal? Short answer is no. Central banks certainly are not going to do that. Again, let's borrow from the RBA and the ECB. They've given you their time phrase. Uh, yield curve control in Australia, three years. That's your policy timeline. No, no normalization for three years. And then from the ECB's point of view, investment plan, fiscal boost for the next two years. That's the political will. So for the next two to three years, I think we're looking at the status quo in terms of policy. That's good for risk appetite. Well, Jeffrey, you thank you so much. And for all of us at Bloomberg Surveillance, including John, uh, John. Uh, Falero. Falero, including John Falero, Jeffrey, you thank you so much with BNY thank uh, Mellon for just great, great conversation through the year perspective have- and wisdom as well. Right now, my most painful interview of the year which always will need a description on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, John Riding is really one of our first, first and strongest supporters of Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg uh, uh, surveillance. And I can only say that Mr. Riding wore this getup once at a Bear Stern party <laughs> and, and Ace Greenberg threw him out of the room long ago <laughs> and far away. For those of you fortunate on radio, he is decked in Santa Claus Galia in an LFC Liverpool Football Club sweater just to let me know that the Tots took down the big defeat uh, the other day. John, the Premier League is one of the few things that seem to have run correctly in this miserable 2020. How did the Premier League do it and Championship League like Preston North End and that do it and so many others in sports failed? Um. It's not entirely clear, but it was they had a comeback plan. Uh, They had bubbles. They had uh, frequent testing. There have been issues. Uh, And uh, apart from one or two games, there have been uh, no uh, crowds. Uh, Unfortunately, they're able to continue, even though the entire country seems to be heading towards tier four lockdown. uh, These sports won't be locked down. So at least we'll have something to watch on uh, Boxing Day. Uh, which is a uh, huge uh, uh, yeah. soccer fixture day in the uh, UK. John, and here I, make in the jokes, US. I make jokes here, but there's a huge mystery to the underlying theories that have gone out the window into the mechanics of coming out of this crisis. If we get a vaccination, do you see normative, traditional macroeconomics out of this crisis, or will it be something different? Well, we do have two vaccines, and hopefully all three of us will get those uh, vaccinations uh, soon, and then we won't have to be uh, remote. Um, And and at that point, uh, when we enough people, I mean, the the terms herd immunity, and it's going to be vaccines into at least 70% of the arms of people in the country, then those parts of the country, those parts of the economy uh, in leisure and hospitality were 
Uh, we've got some four million job losses since February. When, the, when, when that business can come back, we can start to think of a more normal economy. The question is, how many of those businesses will remain? And so it's very important what is going on with this uh, bizarre situation uh, over the fiscal support package. And there is a, a certain person who has to decide, does he want to play the Grinch or does he want to play Santa? Uh, and uh, if we do not get that fiscal support package, which has $280 billion in for supporting small businesses, there's going to be far fewer businesses around come June, July, uh, August, when uh, the economy should be able to get back to a more normal footing. So what happens now is very important in answering your question. And um, uh, honestly, I have to think, like like the uh, uh, Brexit deal today, that the theme is we've got to go to the 11th minute of the 11th hour. Well, it's not the 11th month. It's the 12th month now. But 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 you get the point there. Yeah. Well, then there's a question also of what the longer term damage is, because what you're saying is somewhat contrarian. A lot of people have been shrugging off a lot of the recent weakening data, shrugging off the prospects of a prolonged deal that perhaps doesn't get struck before the uh, money runs out on the 26th. And you're saying it does matter. At what point should people take stock and start to downgrade their expectations for next year based on some of the weakness that we're seeing now? Um, at the point, we don't get a deal. If we get to that point, you need to downgrade expectations for the first half of next year, because next year is going to be a year of two halves, just like a, uh, mm -hmm. uh, any good uh, soccer match. And the first half of the year is going to be one where we're still struggling with the virus. Uh, we all know the infections data. We fortunately uh, all know the uh, uh, death toll uh, from this virus. Uh, and we need to protect ourselves to the point where uh, that vaccine is widely available. And what was key, and we can look back in April and May timeframe, what was key was the income support that the government provided. But employment needs employers and businesses will, a lot of small businesses will struggle. You know, no, it's great. We can look at the stock market. We can see the S&P 500 economy. That looks a pretty good economy. But more than half of people in employment are employed by small businesses that aren't listed on the stock market, that are struggling, that don't have the same access to capital markets. Uh, and that's why uh, a renewal of the PPP program uh, mm -hmm. and other support for businesses is just absolutely vital to make sure that those employers are there for when employment can return for that sector of the economy. All right, John, since you're making you're making a lot of football metaphors here and you really do want to rub the victories of Liverpool in Tom Kane's face as much as possible, the two halves uh, of, of the year sort of like a football game. So let's make an additional uh, sort of two halves analogy here where you've got a binary outcome. Either Liverpool uh, wins the title or it doesn't, uh, depending on what happens during uh, the weeks ahead with inflation. <laughs> Does that work at all, Tom? I don't know. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll see. All I know is Spurs okay. Revenge, right. 28 January 2021. <laughs> right. That's we'll, the schedule. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But in terms of inflation, I mean, a lot of people are saying that it's going to remain muted next year. What's the sort of binary event that could cause the, the difference there? Well, I don't think inflation will remain muted in the sense that it will remain below the Fed's inflation target. Now, I fully recognize including yesterday's report, the last couple of data points on consumer price inflation 
have been very good from the perspective of the consumer. They've been unchanged, and unchanged prices are good. Contrary to what the Fed thinks, that it needs inflation to stimulate the economy, it doesn't. Low inflation enhances people's purchasing power. But the growth rate of money that's coming from the Fed's continued purchases of $120 billion of securities per month uh, is coming, uh, is boosting the money supply at a relatively unprecedented rate. And the question is, does that money have velocity? Now, back in 2008, 2009, the fiscal deficits and the QE were largely fiscal transfers mm -hmm. between corporate America, financial America, and the government. This is, to a, some considerable degree, a transfer between the government and households. And when households spend those accumulated savings, and hopefully the next round of fiscal support that hopefully will be uh, passed, uh, will be signed in the next few days, hopefully, that to a large degree is going to be financed by the Fed printing money. And I think that that will push inflation higher. We already see it in the commodities markets. We see it in prices paid. We see it in the small business surveys. We have yet to see it in the final government price data, but that's at the end of the inflation right. chain. So I think that 2021 will see an above 2% inflation rate. John, you've been such a clear voice on Brexit over the, as Lisa mentioned earlier, folks, five years. Maybe we got an agreement today. Maybe we don't. What does your United Kingdom look like after Brexit, one year out, two years out? Obviously, the prime minister wants Pax Britannica, but what will it look like? Well, again, we in the short run, the question is, what's it going to look like in the next few weeks? Uh, I was watching your show earlier. You mentioned Tesco. Let me give a shout out to them. They've done a fantastic job pivoting in this economy, getting my mother, Merry Christmas, Mom, her groceries once every three weeks. They've done a tremendous job. But if we have those long lines of lorries, trucks, as you call them, uh, at Dover going out and at Calais coming in, uh, we are going to have uh, panic buying and we're going to have shortages. That That's in the short run. In the longer term, there, there simply has to be mm -hmm. a deal. The UK is too important a trading market for the export-oriented economies of the EU uh, not to have a trade right. deal with. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think that happens. Uh, but um, what, what happens in the short term is much more concerning to me uh, if we don't get this deal. Now, you guys reported this morning. Well, here we are. We're very, we're, we're, so it's, it's like earlier in the week with the stimulus deal. We have a deal. Maybe we don't have a deal. Now we're debating over different types of fish. It's like fish and chips and a right. trade deal today. Well, maybe fish and chips at Harrods. John Riding, thank you so much for your support. And also, Lisa just noted there's a job opening 2001 Christmas at Harrods for Santa. I'd show up. Maybe don't show up in that <laughs> Liverpool sweater as well. John Riding of Breen Capital, who over the years has been just wonderful in giving us perspective on this strange economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.